Chapter 3 of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter 3. Alton to Compton. A few miles to the right of the road is a place which no pilgrim of modern times can leave unvisited. Selborne. White's Selborne. The home of the gentle naturalist whose memory haunts these rural scenes. Here he lived in the picturesque house overgrown with creepers, with the sunny garden and dial at the back, and the great spreading oak where he loved to study the ways of the owls, and the juniper tree, which, to his joy, survived the Siberian winter of 1776. And here he died, and lies buried in the quiet churchyard in the shade of the old yew-tree, where he so often stood to watch his favourite birds. Not a stone but what speaks of him, not a turn in the village street but has its tale to tell. The Playstow, or Village Green, which Adam de Gurdon granted to the Augustinian canons of Selborne in the 13th century, where the prior held his market of old, and where young and old met on summer evenings under the big oak, and sat in quiet debate, or frolicked and danced before him, the farmhouse, which now marks the site of the ancient priory itself, founded by Peter de Rupibus, Bishop of Winchester, in 1232, he has described them all. How the good canons grew lazy and secular in their ways after a time, how William of Wickham found certain of them professed hunters and sportsmen, and tried in vain to reform them, and how the estates were finally handed over to the new college of St Mary Magdalene at Oxford by its founder, William of Wainfleet, Gilbert White has already told us. The hangar, with its wooded slopes, rising from the back of his garden, and that noble chalk promontory of Nor Hill, planted with the beeches which he called the most lovely of all forest trees, how familiar they seem to us. Still the swifts wheel to and fro round the low church tower, and the crickets chirp in the long grass, and the white owl is heard at night, just as when he used to linger under the old walls, and watch their manners with infinite care and love. One of the rocky hollow lanes which lead towards Alton will take us back into the road, and bring us to Chawton, a village about a mile from that town. The fine Elizabethan manor-house at the foot of the green knoll, and the grey church peeping out of the trees close by, have been for centuries the home and burial place of the knights. On the south side of the chancel, a black and white marble monument records the memory of that gallant cavalier, Sir Richard Knight, who risked life and fortune in the royal cause, and was invested with the Order of the Royal Oak by Charles II after the Restoration. But it is as the place where Jane Austen, in George Eliot's opinion the greatest artist that has ever written, composed her novels, that Chawton is memorable. The cottage where she lived is still standing a few hundred yards from the great house, which was the home of the brother and nieces to whom she was so fondly attached. She and her sister, Cassandra, settled there in 1809, and remained there until May 1817, when they moved to the corner house of College Street, Winchester, 
where three months afterwards she died. During the eight years spent in this quiet home, Jane Austen attained the height of her powers and wrote her most famous novels, those works which she herself cost her so little, and which, in Tennyson's words, have given her a place in English literature next to Shakespeare. Sense and Sensibility, her first novel, was published two years after the move to Chawton. Persuasion, the last and most finished of the immortal series, was only written in 1816, a year before her death. Seldom, indeed, has so great a novelist led so retired an existence. The life at Chawton, so smooth in its even flow, with the daily round of small excitements and quiet pleasures, the visits to the great house and walks with her nieces in the woods, the shopping expeditions to Alton, the talk about new bonnets and gowns, and the latest news as to the births, deaths and marriages of the numerous relatives in Kent and Hampshire, are faithfully reflected in those pleasant letters of Jane Austen, which her great-nephew, Lord Braybourne, gave to the world. There is a good deal about her flowers, her chickens, her niece's love affairs, the fancy work on which she is engaged, the improvements in the house and garden. You cannot imagine, she writes on one occasion. It is not in human nature to imagine what a nice walk we have round the orchard. But very little indeed about her books. Almost the only allusion we find to one of her characters is in 1816, when she writes to Fanny Knight of Anne Elliot in Persuasion. You may perhaps like the heroine, as she is almost too good for me. Anything like fame or publicity was positively distasteful to her. She owns to feeling absolutely terrified when a lady in town asked to be introduced to her, and then adds laughingly, If I am a wild beast, I cannot help it. It's not my fault. Curiously enough, the Pilgrim's Way, in the later course of its path, brings us to Godmersham, that other and finer home of the Knights of the Kentish Downs, a place also associated with Jane Austen's life and letters, where she spent many pleasant hours in the midst of her family, enjoying the beauty of the spot and its cheerful surroundings. But Chawton retains the supremacy as her own home, and as the scene of those literary labours that were cut short, alas, too soon. What a pity, Sir Walter Scott exclaimed after reading a book of hers, what a pity such a gifted creature died so early. From Chawton it is a short mile to Alton, famous for its breweries and hop gardens and its church door, riddled with the bullets of the roundheads. Our way now leads us through the woods of Alice Holt, Aeschult, the Ashwood, like Woolmer, a royal forest from Saxon times. Alice Holt was renowned for the abundance of its fallow deer, which made it a favourite hunting ground with the Plantagenet kings, and on one occasion Edward II, it is said, gave one of his scullions, Maurice Ken, the sum of twenty shillings, because he fell from his horse, so often out hunting, which made the king laugh exceedingly. Here too, after the Battle of Evesham, Edward, Prince of Wales, defeated Adam de Gurdon, one of Simon de Montfort's chief followers. He is said to have challenged the rebel baron to a single combat, in which Gurdon was wounded and made prisoner, 
but the victor spared his life and afterwards obtained a royal pardon for his vanquished foe. A wild, rugged tract of country, Alice Holt was a chosen haunt of robbers and outlaws, the terror of the wealthier London merchants who journeyed to St. Giles' Fair at Winchester, and in the fourteenth century the wardens of the fair kept five mounted sergeants-at-arms in the forest near Alton for their protection at that season. Soon after leaving Alton, the pilgrims would catch their first sight of the River Way, which rises close to the town. Along the banks of this stream, flowing as it does through some of the loveliest Surrey scenery, their road was now to lie, and not until they crossed St Catherine's Ferry at Guildford were they finally to lose sight of its waters. The river itself, more than one writer has suggested, may owe its name to this circumstance, and have originally been called the Way River from the ancient road which followed the early part of its course. Leaving Froyle Park, Sir Hubert Miller's fine Jacobean house, on our left, we pass Bentley Station, and still following the river, join the Portsmouth Road just before entering Farnham. This town, which takes its name from the commons overgrown with fern and heather still to be seen in the neighbourhood on the Surrey side, is now surrounded with hop gardens. It was among the earliest possessions of the bishops of Winchester, and formed part of the land granted to St. Swithin in 860 by Alfred's elder brother, Ethelbald, King of Wessex. The castle palace, which still looks proudly down on the streets of the little town, was first built by that magnificent prelate Henry of Blois. But little of the original building now remains except the offices, where some round Norman pillars may still be seen. Farnham Castle was partly destroyed by Henry III during his wars with the barons, and suffered greatly at the hands of the rebels in the time of Charles I, but was afterwards rebuilt by Bishop Morley. Queen Elizabeth paid frequent visits here, and on one occasion, while dining in the Great Hall with the Duke of Norfolk, who was suspected of planning a marriage with Mary Queen of Scots, pleasantly advised the Duke to be careful on what pillow he laid his head. The lawn, with its stately cedars and grass-grown moat, deserves a visit, but the most interesting part of the building is the fine old keep, with its massive buttresses and 13th-century arches, commanding a wide view over the elm avenues of the park, and the commons which stretch eastward on the Surrey side. Prominent in the foreground are the picturesque heights of Crooksbury, crowned with those tall pines which Cobbett climbed when he was a boy, to take the nests of crows and magpies. Farnham, it must be remembered, was the birthplace of this remarkable man, and it was at Ash, a small town at the foot of the Hogsback, that he died in 1835. All his life long he retained the fondest affection for these scenes of his youth. In 1825 he brought his son Richard, then a boy of eleven, to see the little old house in the street where he had lived with his grandmother, and showed him the garden at Waverley, where he worked as a lad, the tree near the abbey from which he fell into the river in a perilous attempt to take a crow's nest, and the strawberry beds, where he gathered strawberries for Sir Robert Rich's table, taking care to eat the finest. 
among these hills and commons where he followed the hounds on foot at ten years old and rode across country at seventy we forget the political aspect of his life his bitter invectives against the poor laws and paper money the national debt and the system and think rather of his keen love of nature and delight in the heaths the sandy coppices and forests of surrey and hampshire and now he sleeps in the church of farnham where he desired to be buried in the heart of the wild scenery which he loved so well just under crooksbury that grand scene of cobbett's exploits lies moor park the retreat of sir william temple in his old age which seemed to him to quote his own words the sweetest place i think that i have ever seen in my life either before or since at home or abroad there we may still see the gardens which the statesmen of the triple alliance laid out after the fashion of those which he remembered in holland where he enjoyed the companionship of his beloved sister lady gifford and where his heart lies buried under the sundial here swift lived as his secretary and learnt from king william the third how to cut asparagus here he wrote the tale of the tub and made love to mrs hester johnson lady gifford's pretty black-eyed waiting-maid the memory of that immortal love-story has not yet perished and the house where she lived is still known as stella's cottage here too just beyond moor park on the banks of the way are the ruins of waverley abbey the first cistercian house ever founded in england often described as le petit citeaux and the mother of many other abbeys the more distinguished pilgrims who stopped at farnham would taste the hospitality of the monks of waverley and henry the third was on one occasion their guest the abbot of waverley too was a great personage in these parts and his influence extended over several parishes through which the pilgrims had to pass although the privileges which he claimed were often disputed by the prior of newark the other ecclesiastical magnate who reigned in this part of surrey pilgrims of humbler rank would find ample accommodation in the ancient hostelries of farnham which was at that time a place of considerable importance and returned two members to edward the second's parliament their onward course now lay along the banks of the way until they reached the foot of the narrow curiously shaped chalk ridge known as the hog's back here at a place called whiteway end the end of the white chalk road two roads divide both lead to guildford the one keeping on the crest of the ridge the other along its southern slope the upper road has become an important thoroughfare in modern times and is now the main road from farnham to guildford the lower is a grassy lane not always easy to follow and little used in places which leads through the parishes of seal partenham and compton the bright little villages which stud the sides of the hog's back this green woodland path under the downs was the ancient british and roman track along which the canterbury pilgrims journeyed and which is still in some places spoken of by the inhabitants as the way other names in local use bear the same witness beggar's corner and robbers or roamers moor are supposed to owe their appellations to the pilgrims 
while the ivy-grown manor-house of Schulens, bearing the date of 1616 on its porch, is said to take its name from the word to shul, which in some dialects has the same meaning as to beg. Another trace of the pilgrimage is to be found in the local fairs, which are still held in the towns and villages along the road, and which were fixed at those periods of the year when the pilgrims would be either going to Canterbury or returning from there. Thus we find that at Guildford the chief fair took place at Christmas, when the pilgrims would be on their way to the winter festival of St Thomas, and was only altered to September in 1312, by which time the original day of the saint's martyrdom had ceased to be as popular as the summer feast. Again, the great fair at Shalford was fixed for the Feast of the Assumption, the 15th of August, so as to catch the stream of pilgrims which flowed back from Canterbury after the Feast of the Translation in July, and the seven days' fair there that went by the name of Becket's Fair. Fairs soon came to be held not only at towns such as Farnham, Guildford and Shalford, but at the small villages along the Pilgrim's Road. There was one in the churchyard at Putnam, and another at Wanborough, a church on the northern side of the hill, which belonged to Waverley Abbey, where the offerings made by the pilgrims formed part of the payments yearly received by the abbot, while a third was held on St Catherine's Hill during five days in September. Even the churches along the road often owed their existence to the pilgrimage, the Church of Seal was built early in the 13th century by the abbots of Waverley, and that of Wanborough was rebuilt by the same abbots, and was again allowed to fall into decay when the days of pilgrimages were over. Both the sister chapels of St Catherine and St Martha, we shall see, owed their restoration to the pilgrim's passage, and many more along the way were either raised in honour of St Thomas, or else adorned with frescoes and altarpieces of the martyrdom. Along this pleasant Surrey hillside, the old Canterbury pilgrims journeyed, going from church to church, from shrine to shrine, and more especially, if their pilgrimage took place in summer, enjoying the sweet country air and leafy shades of this quiet woodland region. They lingered, we may well believe, at the village fairs, and stopped at every town to see the sights and hear the news. For the pilgrim of medieval days was, as Dean Stanley reminds us, a traveller with the same adventures, stories, pleasures, pains as the traveller of our own times, and men of every type and class set out on pilgrimages much as tourists today start on a foreign trip. Some, no doubt, undertook the journey from devotion, and more in a vague hope of reaping some profit, both material and spiritual, from a visit to the shrine of the all-powerful saint, while a thousand other motives, curiosity, love of change and adventure, the pleasure of a journey, prompted the crowds who thronged the road at certain seasons of the year. Chaucer's company of pilgrims, we know, was a motley crew, and included men and women whose characters were as varied as their rank and trade. With them came a throng of jugglers and storytellers and minstrels, who beguiled the way with music and laughter as they rode or walked along, so that every town they came through, what with the noise of their singing, and with the sound of their piping, and with the jangling of their Canterbury bells, and with the barking of their dogs after them, 
they made more noise than if the king came there with all his clarions. In their train, too, a crowd of idle folk, of roving peddlers and begging friars and lazy tramps, who were glad of any excuse to beg a crust or coin. The presence of these last was by no means always welcome at the inns and religious houses on the road, where doubtful characters often craved admittance, knowing that if the hand of justice overtook them, they could always find refuge in one of those churches where the rights of sanctuary were so resolutely claimed and so jealously defended by the abbot of Waverley or the prior of Newark. End of chapter 3